Can you hear me? Good morning. Hey, go ahead and find a seat. All right, I'm on. Hey, good morning, church. Go ahead and find a seat. Great to have you all here this morning. Happy Memorial Day Sunday. Welcome to all the kids in the room. Love seeing you all in the room. Parents, welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Justin. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at City Light Bennington. Uh, do you mind turning me down just a little bit? I think I'm a little echoey. feel like a little bit of fishbowl effect. All right. Awesome. Well, hey, good morning. I uh, wanted to say I'm so glad to be with you all. I hope you've been enjoying the great weather. I hope grills have been busted out and you've been spending some great time with family and friends uh, on this long weekend. We remember the true reason why we celebrate this. Thank you to all of those who have served and those who have lost loved ones uh, fighting for freedom. It is an honor and a Christ-like thing, and we want to say thank you. So that being said, I wanted to kick us off as we've been continuing through our series in Genesis. Uh, we actually get a story this morning that is quite different and in a good way. And I want to start out before we get into that story with another story. Um, and it deals with the NFL. Um, so and obviously among the pastors, I'm the most qualified and experienced. Um, maybe Glenn second, but after that it's a coin toss. Uh, but I wanted to start in July of 1961. Coach Vince Lombardi kicked off the first day of summer camp for the Green Bay Packers. The prior season, they had lost the championship game in the fourth quarter after blowing a lead to the Philadelphia Eagles. And so the Packers come in during first day of summer camp, and they're expected to learn all these fancy new ways in order to win more games. But as they sit down in the locker room, Coach Vince Lombardi does something very profound and simple. He takes a football, he holds it in the air, and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. And much to their surprise, he makes them turn back to their playbooks to page one, where they review all of the fundamentals of passing, blocking, throwing, all of the basics. And that refocus of the basics, the fundamentals of the game, would lead them to win five championship games in the next seven years. And coach Vince Lombardi would never coach a losing team again. And the reason I share this story is because I think it parallels to us as Christians. Many times we want to grow stronger and wiser in our faith, and it's a good thing. But I think the temptation is, just like the Green Bay Packers, to think, well, I need fancy new ways in order to do that. And if I may, I would actually argue here this morning uh, that there is nothing new, there is nothing fancy that needs to happen in your life for your faith to strengthen. I would actually argue that, in fact, nothing new whatsoever. It is to simply take what we already know and to have it feel new again. I think a return to the fundamentals is what we as Christians are in desperate need of over and over and over. And so in a very Lombardi-esque way, church, this is God's word. In it tells us everything we need to live a full and godly life. And it is no coincidence that at the center of this book, there is a message that proclaims time and time and time again, God loves you. And so I've titled a message for us this morning, very simply put, yes, God really does love you. And before you're tempted to check out tempted to think what an elementary topic, what a Sunday school lesson, 
let me tell you something by being very blunt and clear. God's love is not like the world's. God's love is not some mushy, gushy, hallmark script. His love is not a game. It's not a riddle. It's not a joke. His love is not some intellectual, effectual, philosophical, religious idea. God's love, in fact, I would argue this morning, is so wonderful and so powerful that if we can push past our cultural uh, definitions, our predispositions, our experiential experiences of love, we would actually behold God's love instead, set all that aside and behold God's love, I believe that you will never be the same again. I believe that. I've experienced that. I can testify to that. And I want to show us that this morning through our passage in Genesis 24. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn there, Genesis chapter 24. And as you're turning there, I just want to go ahead and give a little bit of context. In chapter 23, uh, we have Sarah, who was married to Abraham, and they've had this new son, Isaac, who is the promised son who God has just given to them. Sarah has passed away. Abraham has buried her. And now we pick up in chapter 24, where Abraham, in his old age, is dying. And his last wish before he dies is he wants to find a wife for his son, Isaac. We know that there's this covenant promise that there will be generational blessing upon the generations of all the earth. And for that to happen, there needs to be a husband and a wife. So with this story, we actually get a reprieve from a lot of the heavy, weird, hard, difficult things that we've seen thus far into Genesis. And we actually see a story here that is actually quite lovely. It is a love story between Rebecca and Isaac, a husband and a wife, and how they meet. So let's go ahead and start in chapter 24, verse 1. We'll go through the story together. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So again, we're setting up the scene here. Uh, Abraham wants to find Isaac a wife. He makes this covenant, this kind of promise, this oath with his high-up servant, which if we infer from Genesis 15, we can see that his name is Eliezer. So Eliezer and Abraham make this solemn, serious oath to say, Eliezer, Go find my son a wife. And whatever you do, don't go back to Canaan. Go to the people that God has told us to be with, the people that he has chosen to bless. And so he makes this oath. We see Eliezer's response. If we jump down to verse 10, I'm going to summarize. Otherwise, we'd be here all morning just reading. And so verse 10, uh, it says this. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women would go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I Uh, Woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. 
By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the, son, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord, and quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospected his journey or not. So after this oath was made, Eliezer goes to this well. Uh, he's very prayerful. Uh, we notice two things. He's prayerful, but he's also practical. Before he does anything, he asks God to bless it. He asks God to show steadfast love to his master Abraham. And he kind of makes this kind of weird, like, conditional prayer and, and for the sake of clarity to say, God, I, I, I'm going to need your help to make sure I choose the, white, the right wife for Isaac. And so, God, would you make it clear? Here's the signs. Could you please give me? And this is quite the scene. He's saying, okay, once I go to this well, I'm going to ask the woman who you choose to give me a drink of water. And not only that, but as soon as I ask that, she will also water all my camels, which, again, would have been uh, probably 200 gallons worth of water with this little jug and an hours of hard work. So it's quite the condition. It's going to be very noticeable and very clear that this is the right woman. And God answers that. We see right before he's even finished speaking, God brings Rebecca to the scene immediately. Rebecca does everything that he asked God to show him. Um, and it always cracks me up, verse 21. It just kind of like he's like waiting and wondering if she's the right one. And it's like, bruh. Like, this is obviously her. It, it reminds me of my college ministry days when girls would say, please, just give me a sign of, the, of a godly man. And then God brings a godly man immediately, and she's like, well, he's 5'9", though. He, I don't know if he's actually, if he's actually the one. Well, it's, it's, it's a similar thing. It's like, okay, this is clearly the woman of God's choice. We see Rebecca for the first time. We'll go on to see as this encounter goes on, he will ask if he can go back home with her to get the family's blessing. Uh, she agrees to that. He begins to lavish her with gifts and gold and puts all of this jewelry upon her. Uh, they go back home, and now it's building up suspense because we know that Eleazar believes this is the right woman. But it's all going to come down. Will he actually get the blessing? And so as he begins to recount everything back to the family, this is what I prayed, this is what happened, um, and he goes down to the last detail. He holds his breath and waits for their response. In verse 50, we meet the brother Laban, who is, will be just completely greedy, doesn't really seem to care about his sister, just wants more gold from Eliezer, and then we meet the father of Bethuel. And it says in verse 50, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So we think we're, we've made it. We've got the blessing from dad. But it doesn't matter yet until we get the blessing from Rebekah herself. So we continue to hold our breath. What will Rebekah's response be? Because, again, this story rises or falls if she says yes or no. 
We see very quickly, if we jump down to verse 28, this is her response. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. Uh, a quick, moving love story, but we see Rebecca gives her blessing. She says yes. Uh, and now we kind of see as she returns with Eliezer back to Isaac, uh, I can only imagine she's asking all sorts of questions, wondering what he's like, maybe how tall he is. I don't know. That's left out. But in this scene now, we're going to jump ahead to see what has Isaac been doing this whole time. And if we... Ver Jump to verse 62, we see the first time Isaac is actually even mentioned in all of chapter 24. It says, now Isaac had returned from Bir Lahoroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. And so we see this story uh, begin to come to a close already. Uh, and what we see here is Isaac, for the first time, what is he doing? It says he's in the field meditating. He's praying. And what happens, we don't know exactly what he's praying about, but I can only imagine that he's probably praying about his future wife. And we get this beautiful love story that Rebecca then sees him. He sees her. She asks, who is that man? Eliezer proclaims, it is my master. Uh, she puts her veil down to show that she's submitting and saying, yes, I'm willing to marry this man. And already giving a posture of humility. Uh, it says in verse 67, then the story comes on, with a bow on top. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca, And she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so they get married. And it just ends by saying Isaac loved her. So again, this really just lovely love story. Kind of almost randomly put, it seems like, after all the stories we've seen thus far in Genesis. And the reason for that, I want to show us, not only is this a love story between Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, but if you would actually do a deep dive, many commentators can say the same. Uh, but there's parallels to this story where each person of the Trinity is actually represented in this love story. And the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, is represented as well. And so we as believers are shown in the story. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want to show us how and where. First, I want to show us, you're going to see these tubs here, and we'll get to that. Uh, that's to leave you in suspense on purpose. But God the Father is represented in this story in the father Abraham, right? We see that the father, um, there's this correlation. Uh, we'll explain that. We see Isaac, the son, is going to be represented um, here uh, to represent Jesus. We see the Holy Spirit It actually is represented by Eliezer, and we're going to see Rebecca uh, shows us the bride of Christ and her response. And so, again, to break that all down, there's some teaching here. But God the Father, my first point of this morning's message is God, God wants us. God wants us. And I want to highlight the heart and the love and the desire of the God the Father for us. Like Abraham, God the Father wanted, uh, like Abraham who wanted a wife for his son Isaac, so God the Father wants a bride for his son Jesus. And just because many of us need to hear this, 
straight out of the gates, we see something about God's heart that is so vital to how we engage and see God. God the Father actually wants you. A simple, fundamental thought, truth, reality, but so many times overlooked and underutilized. I think in our lives, how many of us constantly feel this tension of feeling like, I want to be wanted, right? We, a lot of times we just say, well, I, I want to be liked. But deep down, it's a tension. You want to be wanted. You want to be fully known, fully loved, fully desired. And so there's this tension. But in that tension, it coincides with this other tension on this side that is pulling you to feel like in order to accomplish that, external or internal voices are saying you need to change who you are. You're going to have to be something or someone you're not in order for that to happen. And so these, these two tensions that I want to be wanted and yet I feel like I have to be someone I'm not in order to be wanted. And I want to relieve all of those pressures this morning by reminding you that God wants you as you are. That you can lay down those tensions and you can put them to the side. They, they no longer need to be the way that you live your life. God the Father wants you as you are. It says in Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14, uh, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. The question is, does your soul know it very well this morning, church? Does your soul know that God has designed you and knit you by hand before the foundations of the world to to make you exactly how you look, every piece of you. He has made you the way that you are in your personality. That he didn't make a mistake. That no matter what, you, you, you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see or feel. God has made you in a way. He wants you just as you are. And so I think there's this tension again that I, I want to relieve. Because so many of us can live between that tension of either feeling inflated and feeling better than others. We can feel deflated and feeling less than others. We can, we can feel it too much or not enough. But the, at the end of the day, what this shows us, church, is that we care way too much about what other people think of us. But not only that, we think way too much about what we think of ourselves. And the only freedom, the freedom of the gospel shows us that it's not whether you think highly of yourself, whether you think lowly of yourself, whether you think about what other people think of you or what you think of you. It is what God thinks of you. And let me show you what he thinks of you. Psalm 139 will go on in verse 17 and 18. And he says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. Did you know that God has more precious thoughts of you in one moment than there are grains of sand on the entire face of the earth. On every beach, on every desert, on every ocean floor, more grains of sand on the earth is how many precious thoughts God has of you. And if that doesn't outweigh the dust on the scales from what people or what you think of yourself, until that outweighs it you will constantly live in a tension that you'll never be able to get out of let God's word let the way the father wants you free you and give you a, a foundation of how you ought to see him and I want to keep going we could stay there a full sermon but I want to go to our next point 
God pursues us. Not only does God want us, but he wants us so much he does something about it. He pursues us. And in this story, I want to highlight the person of God, the Holy Spirit. Because if we see in our story, again, we look at Eliezer paralleled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Remember that Rebecca uh, was really just living life, business as usual. Uh, There was nothing necessarily remarkable, special about her. Uh, God chose her after a prayer and knew that she would be Isaac's wife all along. And just as our story is the same as Rebecca's, there was a moment in time where business as usual and God the Holy Spirit broke into our story and began to show us and pursue us and begin to convince us that Jesus is actually worthy of us following him. And I can share this in my own personal story. I remember growing up in a Lutheran church, nothing against Lutheran churches, but that was my story all my life, baptized, confirmed, all of it. And I remember when someone would tell me, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for your sins, uh, it really didn't mean much to me because I didn't know what it meant. I, I always had this picture of God in my mind that he, he was just always kind of mildly disappointed he was just always kind of somewhat disgusted with me. That, that, yes, sure, Jesus loves me, but it was very clear to me in my perception uh, that God doesn't really like me. That if he would be, of course, yes, there's forgiveness, yes, there's grace, but, uh, but really, again, you're still struggling with that. You're going to continue to do that and mess up. And, and it just felt like this whole picture of who God was to me was a God who would continue to bludgeon me with shame rather than lavish me with grace. And that began to change. I remember back in college, I went to a Bible study, and I don't remember what the Bible study was even about, but I remember at the end of the study, there was a YouTube video. And in this YouTube video, the gospel was presented for the first time in my life. I was aware of sin. I was aware of Jesus dying on the cross for me in my place. And I remember that changing my perception of Jesus for the first time. I remember thinking to myself, that's not the Jesus I've always thought I knew. And I remember that the Holy Spirit was using that, again, to paint this picture of Jesus that I had never seen. And so, too, there were moments in our lives where the Holy Spirit pursued us, church. If you were born again, the Holy Spirit pursued you and began to convince you, to begin to show you who Jesus actually is. And he's going to begin to bring you along with him. And it's interesting because Eliezer literally means God is my help, the helper. And so we see that. We, we are in desperate need of God's help to see God rightly. And so the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is to actually open our eyes. He begins to show us Jesus for who he actually is. And, and just like Eliezer prayed and asked God to make it very clear who would be the chosen bride for Isaac so too the Holy Spirit creates these conditions, almost if you would call them, for who will be the bride of Christ. And these conditions are very clear. It is simply repentance and faith. And we see this modeled now in Rebecca, who again represents now the church, the bride of Christ. And what do we see in Rebecca's response? In repentance and faith, what does she do? She is told that she has to come and leave everything. She has to leave her family. She has to leave her old life behind to come and marry Isaac. And what does she do? She decides to turn. She leaves everything. She surrenders everything. And it shows us what repentance actually is, is surrender, turning away 
from the old way of life and turning towards Christ. And we also see faith. If you actually look at this story, this is a remarkable faith that Rebecca shows us. The faith of a believer. And she is willing to leave everything for what? To marry a man that she has never met and never seen. By any standard today, that is absurd. We would never do that. And yet, there's something oddly familiar about this kind of faith. In the faith of every believer, if we look at 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. If you think that is a radical faith, it is. And it is the faith of every born-again Christian, represented here in Rebecca, that we were willing to turn from everything. We were willing to turn away from our old desires, our old cravings, our old insecurities and pride, and we were able to leave everything. Why? To be united with a God we've never seen, and yet through the Holy Spirit we can know and we love. And so the last point of the sermon this morning is simply God loves us. And in this, I want to highlight God the Son. I want to highlight the person and work of Jesus. It says in the last uh, verse here in 67 that Isaac loved Rebekah. It's just this beautiful bow on the story. And so it is, just as Isaac loved Rebekah, so Jesus loves us, his church, his bride. It is why Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I remember when, as my story continued, after watching that YouTube video back in college, Again, I was begin, I had begun to stir emotions in me that I had never had towards Jesus because I began to see him in ways I had never seen him. And as the Holy Spirit began to draw me, I went from a place where what we call uh, on staff unconcerned. I went from a place where I didn't really care about spiritual things, uh, but I moved to a place of concern. And after thinking about eternity, after thinking about sin, after thinking about wrath, and thinking about God as creator and the lover of my soul, I began to have spiritual questions that needed spiritual answers. And I was so concerned that the Holy Spirit continued to draw me along with him in this path of following Jesus, and I got to a place where we call convicted. And in my story, as I began to look at my life and take inventory of the ways that I was living it, the ways I was blatantly disregarding God, the ways that I was intentionally living my life in rebellion against him, I began to feel what we call godly sorrow. The Bible calls there's the distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And godly sorrow is focused in the name on God. Worldly sorrow is focused on yourself. And I had felt worldly sorrow plenty. I had felt bad for myself. I had felt embarrassed, humiliated, whatever, fill in the blank. That's worldly sorrow. But for the first time, as I looked at Jesus, I looked at his sacrifice, I heard the gospel of grace, I began to experience for the first time a godly sorrow. A sorrow that focused on God and how the ways that I have grieved him as a person. Not just as some idea, not as some rules or religion, but as a person, I have grieved him in the ways that I have ignored him and neglected him and remained indifferent towards him. But after that, that godly sorrow drew me into a place we call repentant, just as Rebecca, who actually said, I'm so bothered and sorry for my sins that I'm willing to actually turn from them. And as I turned, immediately we go to saving faith, which is where you actually get down on a knee and you 
bow yourself before God and say, God, not only do I turn away, but I turn towards you. I give you my life. I'm willing to follow you whatever it takes. And that is what it looks like to actually follow Jesus, to be born again as the Spirit leads you. Because there was a moment, born again believer, where the Holy Spirit was drawing you along and then you finally met Christ face to face. Maybe not in a literal physical way, obviously, but in a spiritual way where your heart had to come to terms with your life and his. With his goodness and your lack thereof. Of his abundant grace and your desperate need for it. In the moment where you bowed before Jesus, where the cross became absolutely necessary and overwhelmingly precious. That's the moment that we experienced what we call, and the Bible calls, born again. That the Spirit of God awakened you and filled you for the first time. And not only that, but in that glorious moment, something happened and it changed you forever. It changed us forever. In the moment we cried out for grace, this is what happened. This is what happened to you if you are born again. In the moment you cried out to Jesus and asked for his grace to cover your sins, we went from death to life. We went from guilty to innocent Dirty to clean, shackled to free, orphan to son or daughter, enemy to friend. This is the beauty of the love of God and what his love does for those who receive it. And just as Rebecca was divinely met, called, chosen, so we too as the bride of Christ are. And not only that though, we see Rebecca was lavished with gifts, and just like her, the church is as well. Many gifts, I could go through them all day, but just for the sake of time, let me just rattle these off. One of the first gifts that you received when you placed faith in Jesus, you were justified. It is a beautiful word to be justified. Justified as in just as if I'd never sinned is how God now sees you. Declared not guilty, but completely righteous in God's sight. First, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, because of God's love, you are forgiven. And your record stands clean before God for all eternity. Because of Christ. Next one is Sanctification. Not only are we justified, but now we go this ongoing process of sanctification where we are being made more and more into the image of Jesus. Where obeying and following Jesus actually becomes enjoyable and only progressively and increasingly more so as we come to know him and follow him. And so because of God's love, church, your best days are still ahead as you become more and more like the lover of your soul. And this also means something, and now I'm getting to illustration here, for us to see the love of God in in kind of an illustration way. But the moment we were justified, and now as we ongo sanctification, we are not alone. The moment we believed what we got, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the guarantee, the down payment, the seal 
of God's ownership on us now indwells in us. And so, we represented here the born-again believer. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And you're never without God's presence in your life ever again. You're never cut off from his friendship. You're never cut off from his comfort and his help. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God in you now. You're not alone. Not only that, we go on because Colossians 3.3 tells us that we also have a new identity. And Colossians 3.3 says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And so we take our life and dwelt with the Holy Spirit and we are now with Christ. Do you see us in there still? We're with Christ. But not only that, the verse doesn't end there. It says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so we have God, the Father, and our life is now indwelt with the Holy Spirit, hidden with Christ in God. Do you still see yourself in there? Do you see yourself in there? Born again believer? Do you see what the love of God does for your life? Do you see where you are not only locationally but relationally? And how loved you are by our triune God who pursued you, he wants you, he loves you. And not only that, but if we go on, we see that for the born again believer, there is something called preservation, the preservation of faith. Meaning that not only are you in here in good hands, but you will never be separated from this. It says Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, what? From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Means that because of God's love, church, you are guarded and kept in God for all eternity. And not only that, but another one. This thing's getting heavy. Bodily resurrection in the future. Not only preserved, but then you will experience a resurrection. John 3, 16, a glorious verse. Do not let culture dilute this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Meaning, church, because of Christ's death, his life, death, and resurrection, we will not taste death. Do you see what happens to you, church? When your container crumbles and dies, do you see where your soul will be and remain? Do you know that when you exhale your final breath on earth, you will inhale the very next breath at the air of heaven? Do you know that when you close your eyes on earth for the last time, you will open them in glory? This is the love of God that keeps you, protects you, guards you, keeps you, and resurrects you. This is your life. This is your identity. This is the love of God that you can experience every day. And all these blessings I've listed through just a handful of all the spiritual blessings found in Christ. You might ask why. Because we deserved it? No. Because we earned it? 
Not even close. Because God really does love us. That's why. Because God actually loves us. A fundamental truth. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, may boast. We have nothing to boast in. Everything has been grace. Everything has been gifted. Why? Because God really does love us. Maybe you're still wondering, you're saying, that's great, Pastor, but I still, all those things are so intellectual, spiritual, uh, nothing tangible yet. So uh, until that happens, I don't actually believe God loves me. I don't, I'm not actually convinced quite yet until I, I actually experience something a little bit more tangible in my life. So I'll leave you with one final blessing for our time this morning. We've talked about justification, sanctification, preservation. Uh, we've talked about glorification, the resurrection. And the last one is glorification. Glorification. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, this story is not only the story of redemption of when we first come to Christ and meet him for the first time. It also points us to the time where he will come again in his final coming, and we will meet him face to face. Where all these faith-based ideas that aren't necessarily tangible become tangible. Where faith is no longer faith, but faith will now become sight. And you will see Christ face to face. Each and every one of us will stand before him. Whether you want to or not, whether you believe in him or not, you will. And that is the truth. And we will see in all of this, and all these gifts he has lavished upon us, we will see him as the greatest gift of all we will see that the love of God lavished all these wonderful, amazing gifts, yes and amen. But we will also see that God's greatest gift of love to us was himself. To have a chance to enter into personal friendship and relationship with him again where sin had severed that. Remember if in our story, Laban, the brother, greedy, wanted the gold, but Rebecca wanted the groom. And so it is with the Christian. We don't come to Christ because we just want all the gifts, because we want an easier, better life. We want Christ himself. And we will settle for nothing less. And just if we would flip that paradigm, God doesn't just want your service. He doesn't just want your time or your tithe. He doesn't just want your Bible reading, your devotionals, and your prayers, or, or even your obedience. He wants all those things. Don't get me wrong. But he wants those things because he's trying to get what he's been after all along. You. You. He wants you. He has pursued you. He loves you. 
He wants your heart. He wants your trust. He wants your love. We love because he first loved us. This is what he wants. He wants to care for us. He wants to heal us. He wants to take everything that has been bruised by sin and Satan and make it whole again because he loves us. He really does love us. And so when that day comes, and it will, for us who are in Christ, it will be a, a glorious day. We will approach him just like this story. He will be waiting for us, having prayed for us all this time, just like Isaac did for Rebecca, waiting to greet us with open arms. And we will run to him like Rebecca, asking, who is that man? And with joy exploding in our hearts, like Eliezer, we will proclaim, it is my master. And Jesus, greeting us, will respond, well done good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We have a a loving master. The greatest day is still ahead. And in order to get there, because again, like I've said, this is a great love story. I've done some teaching. I've done some illustrations even. It doesn't change the fact that when you walk out those doors, nothing actually has changed. Your life will still be the same. Same problems, same relationships, same job, same family dynamics, fill in the blank. Nothing has changed this morning. The key to see change, though, is believing. If you actually want to believe what has been said this morning, that's where change will happen. And the key to belief is, I would argue, beholding. In 1 John 3, 1 through 3, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. You see, church, our instructions this morning aren't just to believe in God's love for you. That can, that can stay up here for, for most, if not all, of your life. But if you want to walk out those doors and actually see something change, it's got to drop. It it can no longer be intellectually known. It must be experientially known. It must be beheld. God's love for you personally. You see, beholding, if I can use an example, is like the difference between believing and beholding. It's like a child walking alongside their parent. The child knows, the parent loves them, the parent does in fact love their child and as they're walking along the parent in a swoop of joy and emotion sweeps down picks up their child face to face and says I love you and begins to hug them and kiss them see the difference between believing and beholding in that moment the child didn't receive any new information child always knew and believed that their parent loved them. But experiencing, beholding that love, that information was known in ways it would not have otherwise been. And so it is with us. Until you experience the love of God, until it becomes tangible, until you actually behold it personally, until you actually behold the Father who wants you, until you behold Holy Spirit who has pursued you and is pursuing you 
until you behold the son who loved himself and gave himself for you on the cross. Nothing will change. But again, if you do, if you do believe that, if you do behold them, again, I would dare to say that you will never be the same again. And so church, to end our time, I just want us to remember God really does love us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. I thank you for everyone in this room. Would they experience that and behold that in ways that are beyond just believing, but in ways that are personal and intimate and close with you. And that God, through your love, they would be changed forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.